Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Jason Carter, who is the author of To Hell I Ride, When a Life Examined Became Worth Living. Jason shares with us his journey from drinking to sobriety to drinking again and then to sobriety. He also shares uh, his story of wanting to end his life and how he found and created a life worth living. This is such a powerful episode. I took so many notes, and I can't wait for you to listen to it. He's a father, a husband, and also a business owner, uh, 50 years old. Let's get into the episode. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to share, comment. And I appreciate all the emails. You can always send an email to leoflowers2000 at gmail.com. Let's get into the episode. Did you have any questions for me? No, I, you know, I'm really happy that we connected and, you know, I listened to some of your podcasts and read your story and, um, you know, I know you're in San Diego. I was born there, so there's a little bit of common ground and, uh, I'm excited to talk about it. I know that you're on a, a pretty meaningful mission and uh, I'm kind of getting started on my own. So I think we're going to have a lot of things in common there uh, to talk about and what we're trying to do. Yeah. You know, San Diego is a very active city and, you know, I love how you start your book off to hell. I ride um, talking about, you know, you're, you're on, you're on a, like a five mile run. And, you know, you, you have this idea of uh, or this impulse to jump off of a bridge. And what I found was ironic, and, you know, you mentioned this in the book, is how you were listening to a motivational playlist, right? And, and you're like, maybe I should change that. Have, have you, <laughs> I know this is a crazy place to start, but have you changed the playlist that you exercise or run to? You know, I probably should, but I haven't. I have, you know, on Spotify, 10 to 20 different playlists, and they're all an aggregate of, like, 90s hip-hop, uh, grunge, and I really like EDM. You know, not that I'm a club kid, but I think it's perfect for something like jogging. I always need something that's going to just keep pushing me through. You know, I wasn't actually listening to, like, really sad songs, and... uh it was just, I think the feeling was so overwhelming, but at the same time, I had to recognize everything that was going on in that moment and why I was feeling that way. And so certainly music could have been <laughs> the problem. So what was going on in that moment where you're, you're on a five mile run and you're outside and, and, and it's, it's important to highlight because when we talk about like mental health strategies and, and skills and tactics, uh, you know, one of the things we talk about is exercising and being outdoors. And here you are, you're doing those things, and yet you still have this impulse to jump. What was going on for you at that time? So it it had a pretty long tail. And I would say that, you know, for the, the 10 or so years prior to that, uh, I had, but well, I stopped drinking and then I restarted after about nine months. And I just was continually getting 
sadder and sadder, but not really admitting it. And and I really used exercise. I mean, that, that was my break even, you know, uh, I know that the way I exercise now, I try to do things that are fun and enjoyable. But when I was going on five mile runs at six in the morning, it was to sweat out all the demons before I had to get back to work and, you know, be a man and make a living and be a father. So these were kind of you know, my dad was in the military. So I almost thought of these as like Marine grade runs, you know, like my inner voice would come into my room, banging the trash can, you know, get out of bed. And so these things were not, oh, I'm going to go on a run and really take it all in. Um, and, you know, the, I don't, I'm not being flip about things like suicide, but it, it, I wonder if this is more common for a lot of people because, you, you know, there are people certainly, as it is on television shows, you know, they, they kill themselves, life's miserable in that moment. But I wonder how many people just kind of think about it, you know, softly and quietly until it gets a little more. And, and, and I kind of saw it as a, you know, a way out, a vacation, almost like, boy, what a great way to recharge my batteries. And, I wasn't really honest with myself in how I was just very depressed. You know, um, I, by all measures, I kept up appearances. I was doing fine at work, you know, good dad, average husband could do better. But, you know, the running was a way to just kind of like, okay, let's leave yesterday behind and we're going to start all over. And then there would be that, you know, that brief fleeting moment where you do feel good and the endorphins are going um, but the next thing you know, it's like five o'clock and you're got another drink in your hand and you're going to repeat the cycle. And, and I got to be honest, I was just, I think to the point where I was just exhausted, you know, serving kind of two masters, um, trying to be healthy, but at the same time, intake of my intake with alcohol was probably higher than average. Um, you know, if like two bottles of wine and maybe a cocktail is above average, um, it should be. Um, and so anyway, that was it. So tell me more about this exhaustion, because it, it's important to note a lot of people right now are trying to be uh, a husband or, or wife or mother and caretaker. So you, you're trying to be a provider, a protector, um, you know, a, a, a person that other people can look up to. And at some point, uh, something has to give, right? We, it's almost like we're trying to keep up this facade of we're doing everything perfectly and we're not allowing ourselves a break, a moment to reflect time off. And when you said that suicide for you is more about a vacation, uh, taking some time off, tell me more about this exhaustion and, and where that came from. Yeah. So just from a, a, the, a drinker's point of view, and I think that you could replace, you know, switch out drinking with any other bad habit or addiction that is just getting in your way. And, you know, now that I haven't had a drink in six years, you know, I can wake up, I can do my to-do list and go to the day with intention. And I've always naturally wanted to do that. But when you throw on, you know, the hangover, those things just become very hard to do. So you're, you're, you're dragging this giant anchor and kind of no matter how hard you try, how hard you do, this thing is always 
getting in the way, I, I simplify it thinking like a diet, you know, like, oh, I want to lose 10 pounds. And then all of a sudden you're rummaging through the refrigerator at night and there's a cake <laughs> and you eat it. And then you, you know, you eat 3000 calories and then you wake up the next day so mad at yourself and, and physically, scientifically way behind, you know, you're already at a 3000 calorie surplus and you're already going, I would literally have to run 20 miles to burn that off. And so even things like exercise become this, I'm just playing catch up, you know, and you're always chasing the train or whatever it is that you're going after, you're never getting it. And then if in those rare moments that you do, you tend to self-sabotage and just repeat the cycle. And, you know, for somebody that is, you know, I think naturally at my core, a pretty optimistic, um, believe I can do anything type, it just became, I mean, exhausted is the only word I could really think of to just be perfectly blank with energy and without hope because I was self-aware enough to know that, oh yeah, I may accomplish this, but, you know, at some point I'm going to uh, crash and burn, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, drinking too much or, you know, and making a bad decision or, you know, just taking my health um, farther and farther down to where I think it would be hard to turn around at my age. Where did this idea that I can do anything come from? Do you feel like that was innate? Were those messages drilled into you from society, from your parents, uh, siblings, this, I can do anything. Where did that come from? Um, maybe I'm just delusional, uh, but I, I just remember, I, I, I will say it started on the playgrounds and baseball fields when I was very young, you know, first, second, third grade. Um, I had a talent for baseball and, and that just taught me that I could strike out anybody, you know, I could hit anything. And that, and that started carrying into over and other things, but the, 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 the sad part is, is that most of the things that I wanted to pursue, I, I, I still believed in this, but as I grew older, my actions were congruent with my beliefs. You know, I moved at one point to Los Angeles to write screenplays and, you know, I studied scripts, I read every book and, you know, I knew, I, I just knew that within a month they were going to send a limo with an agent in Champagne. I see you laughing as you, you know, I'm sure we all thought that. But, you know, looking back, yeah, I, I pounded away, I wrote scripts, but what I, I wasn't giving it my best shot because I was, you know, up on Sunset Strip half the time um, and, and drinking a lot. And instead of, you know, doing the 10th rewrite of a scene, you know, I was like, that's eh, good enough and let's just see what happens. So that's another part part of exhaustion when, when your physical reality is just in a complete opposite going in the complete opposite direction of what you believe. And that becomes something that I think really breaks away at your own sense of trust, you know, yourself, you know, like some people may be able to, you know, do all these horrible things and they're like, Oh, don't even think about it. I, on the other hand, would ruminate it over all day, you know, and, and just go, you know, why am I doing this? I, I see people in Los Angeles doing yoga and they're drinking a green smoothie and they're vibrant and healthy and I'm hungover and, you know, going to buy a pack of cigarettes at 7-Eleven, you know, it's it just, 
to to have that level of self-awareness, I think that's what makes it um, not only very difficult, but ultimately, ultimately uh, untainable. Wow, that was such a powerful statement in terms of when you have an idea about your values and beliefs and then your actions are sabotaging or, or going against that, how it breaks away at your, your trust, uh, at, at, your, at your belief in yourself. Um, how, when you, when you feel yourself chipping away at that trust, do you feel like it also then erodes your ability to trust others? That's a, a great question. And I don't automatically just look at other people and go, I don't trust them. But I, at the same time, I think I don't expect a lot uh, from people, you know, child of divorce, you know, I, I, I don't know. I know it's done today. Everybody understands, you know, the dynamic, but, you know, back in the seventies, early eighties, it was like parents split up. Eh. But ultimately the thing that a child is probably supposed to trust the most is the family. That's the foundation of your life. And, and once that breaks, you kind of start looking around going, okay, uh, what else is there uh, that is going to break on me? Or what can I really bite down on and, 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 and count on? And in many cases that becomes uh, alcohol or drugs. You know, I know that when I drink this bottle of wine, I'm going to feel a certain way. And if I have another one, it's going to be even better. And, and it's, you can repeat it. Uh, you can count on it. You know, sometimes you're going to, you know, end up in New Orleans and have like a, you know, a hurricane and it might not be so great, but for the most part, I don't expect a lot from people because I have more of a, I, I got to do this on my own. And, and I don't really like that. And I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, better about it, but it really the only way is I think by action, you know, I am not big on words. I like to see things done. And, and I, I'm certainly not perfect. I'm sure I let a lot of people down myself, but at least I'm aware of it. You shared that when you take that drink, you know how you're going to feel. When I talk to and have listened to and read about people who drink a lot and alcoholics, they, they talk about a cycle of emotions and feelings. What was that cycle of emotions and feelings for you? I know you talked about waking up angry. Were there other emotions that were involved? You know, take us from like that first sip to, you know, the waking up in the morning and, and going through your day. You know, the first, I would say the first sip, it's always, at least in the last five to 10 years of when I drank, it was, oh no, here I go again. You know, I know if I have this drink, I know exactly how the day or the night is going to end. And I, I wasn't really excited about it. You know, I was like, why am I not the guy that goes on a bike ride after work? You know, um, but by halfway through the first one, there's just the sense of relief. You know, um, I have, I think of my inner voice. I know we all have one. Some of us have a lot of them, but mine just, was never very kind to me, you know, it was kind of like a, a bad version of like Dennis Miller, just constantly nitpicking at everything I did all throughout the day. But, you know, I found that the second drink, the voice just went away and it was replaced with, you know, 
the voice that was, oh, you're so great. You know, you, you're doing everything right. You deserve this. Um, and then when that voice stops talking, that's usually when I was kind of veering into a blackout mode or, you know, the kind of the who cares mode. And so that was, that was it. And then the next day would just be completely remorseful, you know, suffocating in shame and regret. And, and that's not a real great way to start your day. You know, when you pop out of bed and you already hate yourself, um, you know, it takes a lot, you know, turn that, that, uh, that ship around. I mean, it's like an aircraft carrier and that's why I would go running, you know, thinking I could just make it all better, sweat it out. So that was the cycle. And I mean, you know, a lot of people, normal functioning adults, they do that three times a year, you know, maybe on vacation. But when you start doing that every day, it's just, you know, your body and your brain was not made, I think, to just continually recover and recover and, you know, break down, build, break down, build to the point where not only you're physically exhausted, but emotionally, you're just like, you know, what's the point of even trying? Cause you know, this, this repeatable cycle is, is in your very near future. So that run, right. Is kind of the way of sweating out the demons, exercising, uh, all those, uh, nitpicking Dennis Miller type of, of thoughts that pain, shame and regret. And then I would imagine, what's the feeling after the run? Are we are we grabbing a drink right after the run, or what's the space like in between the the run of the next day? And then when are we picking up that next drink? Yeah, I mean, the, I you know was you know I lived a, a normal life, you know, nine to five job, uh, more like you know eight to six or uh, so. That was just finish the run, you know, sweat it out, shave, go to work, drop the kids off at school, you know, do everything by the book as best as I can. Um, and then just kind of, you know, crank it back up once I left the office. And, um, you know, I, I was I was a professional uh, drinker, you know, I would stop by a bar that was on the way home that other friends of mine stopped to. And it, it was under the guise of, oh, we're just getting together to talk about our days, you know, and I'm kind of, you know, drinking pretty aggressively. And then I would go to the grocery store like a great husband would and pick up dinner, fresh vegetables, fruit, oh, three bottles of wine and go home and kind of do that thing. And my kids were at an age where they, they weren't entire. And I was very conscious about like, I don't ever want my kids to, you know, see me real sloppy and drunk. And so I would just kind of keep carrying it on until they went to bed and then finish whatever was in the house. Um, you know, usually up, you know, watching Letterman by myself after my wife went to bed angry <laughs> again, and then you repeat the next day. So, um, and on the weekends, of course, if it could start very early. There wouldn't be a run. <laughs> wow. It, it, you know, what's interesting to me is it sounds like between the run and your next drink, you're in this kind of I'm being a good boy mode, right? Because you you, you talked about how, um, 
you know, I'm going to do things by the book. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make sure that bills are provided for. And you said by the book. And I, I can't tell if that's like I'm being a good boy or I'm living up to this kind of a like a militaristic ideal of of what a man is. And is did that, am I close to what you were experiencing or? Uh, absolutely. You know, um, I, it was my way of saying, you know, see, last night wasn't a big deal. I'm up and running and I'm exercising and I'm going to work. So everything's fine. And, you know, that, that I would, like I wasn't expecting the, you know, the gold star, but it was my own, you know, kind of pathetic and angry way to like, well, I'll show you, you know, um, and, and it was a pretty common thing, you know, in and around where I live, there was uh, some of us that would meet uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays or something and at the gym real early, even though the night before, you know, we were all pretty chewed up um, at a party and it was just became kind of like funny, you know, like, oh, we got to run this one off and get in the steam room and, you know, go on with our day. So it is it, definitely you're, you're paying the piper. Uh, for sure. And, and remarkably when I, I took a, I thought I quit for good when I was 35 and I had about nine months there of not drinking. And I, I did start running uh, aggressively uh, marathon style, um, ran a marathon. And it, it was hard when I started drinking again to look back and go, man, I never felt better. I, I was ripped, you know, my skin was clear. Everything was great why am I doing this again? And, and even, and that, that's what made it so painful is that I saw what the other side looked like and it was amazing and beautiful. And, and, but then I just made enough excuses as to why it wasn't for me um, to continue drinking again. And, and, and that was something that, I mean, not a day went by where I, I just wasn't thinking about that. And I would see other people that stopped, drinking and I would look at them and I was so jealous like I know exactly how you feel and I know how you're going to feel tomorrow when you wake up and you're bright-eyed and you're making your kids pancakes and really happy and I'm going to be <laughs> lacing up my Nikes trying not to throw up before I get through the first mile. How old were you when you had your first drink? Um, the first sip of beer I had I think I was in, I would say second or third grade. It was just a, like a Pabst Blue Ribbon. You know, my dad and his buddies were hunting and they passed around a little can. So it was, you know, all innocent stuff. And I think that, you know, every once in a while I would take a little sniff of my grandparents' cocktail. But when I was in seventh grade, that's the best memory I have is the first time I really got like drunk. California coolers, uh, not a good start to that orange flavored. And, you know, looking back, you know, throwing up, making a fool of myself, um, just not even knowing how I got home. I wonder why I couldn't have gone, you know what? Um, the burned hand teaches best. <laughs> I should never do that again. But instead, I, you know, the, kind of the culture I was raised in, you know, my dad was a Marine fraternity guy, big drinker. And, you know, the people that I really idolized and looked up to were 
you know, these men that owned a business and drank scotch and went to the country club. And so I, I just thought that drinking was like, no, that's, that's going to be a part of your life. I want that to be a part of my life. There wasn't an alternative for me to really look at. I, you know, like if you went to Ojai, California for like a weekend and, you know, saw people uh, sitting next to crystals and stretching and drinking juice and how great they feel. And you saw that often you, or you were raised in that environment. I mean, chances are you're going to kind of do that too. You know, you might, you know, one out of a hundred might rebel against it and go the opposite way. But for the most part, they're like, wait, I'm learning about life. You know, there's books, there's TV, there's my parents and their friends and my friends. And, and you're just picking up what you see and what you like and what agrees with you. And, you know, I know the way to say it, alcohol just fit me like a glove. Oh, that makes sense. Cause I know in the book to, to hell I ride, you talk about how your brother had two sips, your older brother, and you know, he couldn't hold his alcohol. So he, you know, whatever gene that he had, you, you know, you didn't get, you got the, the gene of, I can keep drinking. He got the, the gene, I, I think similar to your grandparents, right? Like you had an opportunity to witness. They also can have two drinks and kind of lay back. But my, my feeling is that you didn't look up to them the way you looked up to these men and the military guys and, um, and, and the lifestyle. That's, that's very true. So, you know, my dad, very complicated uh, person that I wouldn't, you know, say I had the greatest relationship with, God rest his soul. But, you know, when I look back, and especially when I wrote the book and really was reliving these moments, what I, what I started to find out was that, you know, the reason I, I think I really gravitated towards alcohol is because my dad drank. And, you know, once there was the divorce and I was not around him and he was in California, I was in Texas. That was a way to keep the connective tissue alive, you know, and Every summer when I'd go out, you know, even, you know, starting fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, it was like, he'd give me a beer, you know, and it was the greatest beer because we're sitting on his deck and he's cooking steaks. And I just thought, okay, this is, this is the fatherhood, uh, the father figure that I so desperately need. And, you know, the one thing we have in common, and maybe the only thing is that we both love drinking. So I think that any amount of hangovers or bad experiences I had on my own, I would just brush them aside and go, that's fine. This is who I am. And that's my dad. And that's how we do it. And I haven't really talked to my brother about this, but I want to may even call him right after this is I don't think he probably loved or needed the dad the way I did. Just a theory could be off, but I, that's a, you got me thinking about something very interesting. So maybe I hear, I idolized him in a way that I wanted to be like him. And maybe my brother was seeing things, especially being older and having a little more game tape to review was probably like, I don't want to be anything like that guy. You know, it's interesting. And I want to highlight something um, that you said, and, and this is especially important for the listeners you know, the way we use our language, because one of the things I hear you saying, Jason, is, um, you know, the only thing that you had that connected you and your father was the drinking. In your book, though, To Hell I Ride, you talk about how you two played catch 
and you had this love for uh, baseball or, or sports. And can, so can you tell me more about that? Because that's something I was jealous of when I read it. You know, my dad wasn't around and I was like, man, I wish I had a father to play catch with. Did you feel like you two were able to connect playing catch or through baseball or, or did you secretly like hate sports and just did it because he seemed to enjoy it? No, um, you know, first of all, thank you. Uh, it sounds like you gave the book a good reading. And uh, that's, a, that's a great point because we did have that baseball connection. And then when my parents, I guess, you know, divorced, we moved to a different state that was gone. And so there's a part of me that thinks was I using the drinking to keep some, I couldn't go through the ball to California. Um, I, I just, and we also had a very, he, he had a great sense of humor. You know, my dad was a very funny man and, you know, he, some dark in places, but very funny, great taste in, you know, movies and music. And so we always had that, but at a distance, the only thing that I could cycle up and, it, you know, it, I'm already starting to sound like somebody making excuses like, well, this is why I drink. Uh, um, but but I, 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 I like to think that that was a way of me and him to connect as bad as it may have been and, and unhealthy. But um, I, I, it, there was there was definitely a void I was trying to fill. And I'm not sure if I'll ever fully figure it out, but it's great and his purpose in life was very meaningful because it has taught me how to be a better father and 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 simplifying it by just simply going do the opposite of that <laughs> and and I think he really wanted to show more affection and love and I just don't think he was capable you know not only was he an only child you know uh, born on a farm you know old school guy, you know, masculinity, Marines, fraternities. I, I don't think men that in, of that generation, maybe like your dad, um, or you said you, you missed the father, but they weren't taught to hug their kid or just, you know, love them for no other reason than you're sitting there watching TV and it's okay to go scratch their head and tell them how great they are, you know? So he he did me a great service that, that he didn't get a chance to understand or know about, but I, I kind of have a feeling he knows. I really want to get into how you find ways of scratching your own head, but if we could go back just a little bit, and you talked about being sober for 10 years, correct? Nine months. Nine months. Um, yeah. And so how did you... Did you did you go cold turkey, and, and and if not, how did you stop? And then walk us through how what led you into restarting after nine months. Um, uh, it's a, it's a great story. So you know, I go up on a vacation with some friends, and we're in Montana. You know, which is you know outdoor wonderland of you know hiking and fishing and this and that, and. I mean, the amount of drinking that, that I was doing, it was, even I was like taken aback, you know, <laughs> like, wait a minute, you know, cause we were having, you know, big wine lunches and all these things, staying up late night dancing. And so anyway, I get home and I get on the scale and I weighed like 213 pounds. And I was just like, oh, I had never weighed that much. And so that's what 
led me to go, you know what? I just kind of stopped drinking. I mean, not to me the best reason. It's, you know, about vanity. But I, I just stopped cold turkey and I said, to hell with it. And it was remarkably difficult for the first month, not so much because I was craving a drink, but just how people were responding. You know, like if we were at dinner and, you know, we're going around drinks, I'm like, I'll just have a nice tea. It's like the whole table, oh my God, what did you do? And and sure, curiosity is one thing, but it's all, it was also, I, I, I was already had enough self-loathe to take that as very offensive. You know, like they must think so low of me that they can just make a big scene about me ordering a club soda. And I just hated them for it, you know, um, unable to communicate that in a normal way. Like, hey, you know, Jerry, um, <laughs> I'm just trying to improve my life. And there was just, I mean, the lack of support and understanding, and a lot of it was my own fault. I wasn't really sharing a lot. But after a couple of months, I really, you know, the the physical effects um, kind of just overwhelmed me and how much energy I had and how I was, you know, being able to think I could do anything I want and actually going out and doing it, you know, like things at work, uh, you know, fitness goals, uh, sign up for a marathon, train for it, finish it. And it was in the summer when I was coming up on like the seven month thing. And, you know, the whole, my, my entire memories of summer are like, you know, pool, golf, beach, whatever, but you're always drinking. And I, I just found myself really bored. Um, and then everybody that I would, was around was drinking and I just wasn't really prepared to be, I guess, alone. And that's when I just had the first idea of like, well, maybe I'll start again. No, 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 no. And I was really struggling and fighting myself. And at, at some point, all of those frustrations, which I know is just like, you know, my inner voice going, oh, we're going to get you back. Um, you know, my wife and uh, kids went out of town and I was alone for two days. And the first night I was like driving by the grocery store, you know, like, like a kid on a bike doing wheelies or something. And I managed to not go in and buy any wine, went home, watched a movie, woke up the next day and just thanks God right there. I'm like, um, what a disaster that could have been. Um, but then the next night I went in and, you know, got like a six pack of wine and woke up the next day. And then I was back. Um, and I think the things just work out that way. I mean, I, I think what I learned that first time is that, you know, going it alone, <clears throat> probably not the best idea. Um, and, and certainly with stopping for kind of no meaningful reason that aligns with what you really want in life. Um, I think that's the other part, you know, I, I, I couldn't connect the dots. I couldn't convince myself that this was a better life. Wow. That is so many powerful things you just shared. One is the boredom aspect. I, I listened to a podcast, uh, with David Chang, who's a good friend of Anthony Bourdain, um, who, you know, rest in peace. 
And he had David Chow on. I believe his name is David Chow. And, and he is a gambling addict. And he was talking about how when, um, if he was up $20 million or down $20 million, they were both the same to him. What he didn't want to be is in the middle because in the middle is boring. So it's interesting that you mentioned that for you, what brought you out of your sobriety was one part boredom, uh, second part, because like you said, you signed up for the marathon, you trained for it, and then you finished it. And, and then I would assume that there's a part of your brain that goes, well, don't I get a reward for that? Don't I get a, a something more than, you know, maybe a medal or whatever ribbon you get for it? And then the other part is the thinking, right? In terms of, you know, because you also shared that it was your thinking at the time that, well, everyone is drinking. When, you know, that everyone is what becomes dangerous. Because in, in reality, everyone is not drinking, right? It's just we're at the time we're seeing people who are drinking. And so then we overgeneralize that and say, everyone is drinking. So I don't want to be left out of the party, you know? Right. Um, and then no, that just being making alone. the argument to ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so the, those words like everyone and, you know, earlier we talked about only, and these are things that like, when you go to therapy, your, your therapist, if they're, if they're working through a cognitive behavioral lens, will pick up on those words like everything, everyone, only, always. Because as we know, it's never everyone or always or, or only, right? Like only denotes we don't have options. So I'm saying this more for the listeners so that they can catch when they are having these thoughts of everyone, only, always, or like when you went to the grocery store early on when you were drinking, you're like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just be getting a few things and, uh, and then I'll just grab a few drinks and then I'll just, it makes it sound like it's harmless, right? Mm -hmm. When indeed um, it, it's a slow buildup to the, the anger, sadness, rage, and, and resentment that we, we then feel the, the morning after. Um, Talk to me more about, you know, this, um, this idea of, uh, of being alone. What was it? What is it about being alone? Does it, is it scary for you? Is it cause anxiety? You said that the wife and the kids were gone. What, what was it that you're experiencing when you were alone with yourself? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I would, I probably grayed out as a, an introvert, you know, I, I've never been afraid of like being alone. I'm not one of these people that has to have people around, you know, uh, I've got a pretty good imagination. I like to read. And now that we have phones with uh, every available movie ever made, um, you know, I can fill time. I think what was really happening is that, you know, the, the, I, I call him King Alcohol, who was pulling the puppet strings. He was telling me, he's like, oh, you're all alone you know, what are we going to do now? We can really do something. And instead of me, you know, fighting that off and saying, you know, I'm going to go hit golf balls or I'm going to mow the yard or, you know, the, or the other hundred things that normal human beings could do on a Saturday afternoon. I let that 
start, like I took the sales pitch, you know, I took the meeting, you know, I let them do their PowerPoint presentation. And I'm like, hmm, could you go back a slide? Uh, you, you say everyone's gone. No one will know, huh? Um, is there a guarantee? And so I was just, at the end of the day, I think that I was uh, not strong enough and maybe just not committed enough to what I was doing. And 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 really, I think when you, as we talked about earlier, when you have an idea and then it lives in your head, but you're physically, you're not doing anything to really accomplish that. And, you know, you, you see that every day. I think that I started thinking like, look, this is going to be just another thing that we gave it a shot, you know, and it didn't work out and who cares. And there wasn't like, I, I guess I was expecting like a payoff or, you know, the reward, but you know, the, the truth is, I don't know if there is a reward in life, you know, that's big enough to satisfy what we all think we are expecting. Um, and I've learned a lot just through like reading, you know, the power of now and being present is that the reward is this breath I'm taking, you know, the, the reward is hanging out with your kid. The reward is meeting a new friend. You know, it's not something that's just going to come falling out of the sky, like a, a, a treasure chest filled with money or something. It's, the reward is being able to stay focused on the now in this present moment. And it's very difficult, but also to forget the past and, you know, realize the future is just your imagination run wild. Wow. That, that is so beautiful. Uh, I have to repeat that when you talk about, because so many of us reward ourselves with food, drugs, alcohol, sex, and, you know, earlier you talked about how much you wanted to be the guy who comes home after work and goes for a bike ride instead of going for a beer or another drink. And that realization, because even at myself as a comedian, like, you know, I, I might do two or three shows in a night and then I expect some massive reward. And, you know, early on it was women, right? It was it was sex it, or it was food or it was both. And. Jalen, I was calling or yeah, you know. yeah, absolutely. Or getting booked for another a gig or, you know, some type of, you know, huge dopamine rush of, uh, ex from external validation. And for you to say the reward is breath is the breath that you're taking. The fact that you're still alive, that you made a new friend or connection that you get to hang out with people that you care about and that you get to stay focused on the now. Those are all very powerful rewards and i think that uh unfortunately we've been trained that rewards have to be um uh external and and those are awards right those are awards awards are what, what other people give us but rewards are what we give to ourselves and there's there's not enough emphasis on how do we reward ourselves or how are we rewarding ourselves so so that's beautiful so have you so what do you do now after a long day's work? Do you, are you the guy that goes for the bike ride? Uh, I do. I have uh, two bikes now. Um, but, you know, what was really great about that, that, that first learning experience is that, you know, you don't have to turn into this manic hobbyist. You know, I think that, you know, if anybody out there has recently stopped 
doing something, whether it's drinking drugs or burning houses down, you know, give yourself the time to realize who the hell you are. Because, you know, for me, my identity that people identified me with was like, oh, here's Jason, you know, fun times are about to happen. Um, See, it took me a while just to realize who I really was, you know, and what I liked doing and what I used to think I loved doing, which, you know, happy hour or, you know, drinking this, drinking that. I realized one day I was like, you know what? Doing nothing's great. And you know what else is cool? Going to change my, uh, the chain on my bike, um, going down to the bike shop and talking. And I think I was talking to somebody and they were expressing their own concern about just becoming so bored if they ever stopped the way I did. And I asked him, I go, well, what'd you do when you were a child? Well, I hunted, I fished, I played baseball. And all this. I was like, well, were you, were you bored then? And I'm like, no, you know, absolutely not. And so if you kind of think about if you, whatever habit you get out of your way and once it's done, you're kind of reborn, you know, you're starting afresh, you're coming out of the bomb shelter. You have to kind of go back to the factory settings of who you really are and what you used to enjoy doing. Um, you know, and as long as I wasn't, you know, dropping watermelons off bridges to oncoming traffic, you should um, go back and start doing those things. And, and and you're starting to learn how to have fun again. And and nobody else gonna nobody's gonna come join you. Um, so it is a, a, it's a solo mission. Um, but I think at some point you start attracting the people that also want to be doing that, and it just doesn't happen overnight. You know, I mean, if you think about your life, you know, how long did it take you to find your first real best friend? I mean, years, maybe decades. And so the idea of being able to just kind of stop doing one thing and expect everything's going to be great. And you're going to find the right people and the right hobbies and just do all this. And, and what makes this all worse is that, you know, there's an app for that. So people are starting to measure and count their days and, you know, do all these things rather than just you know, go jump in the pool, swim some laps, you know, maybe put on some goggles and pretend you're scuba diving, you know, just play with the world again without alcohol involved because, you know, as great as alcohol is and can be, and I'm not really against it, frankly, it just didn't work for me. You know, alcohol is the easy button because no matter what you were, you could be on a cruise. Um, and if you're drinking with strangers, the next thing you know, you're having the greatest conversation. But what I found is that the conversations that I have now, sometimes with the, you know, the barista at Starbucks or the guy fixing my bike are more meaningful because we're both interested, you know, in what the other's doing. And it's not, you know, some of the conversations that we all thought were so great that we barely even remember in the morning, maybe they don't even have the impact we think they ever had or were going to have. And so, it's a lifestyle change, like full stop. You, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, one of the things you would change is not try to go sober alone. Um, I know in the book that, you know, in the first chapter, you talk about uh, meeting with a psychiatrist. And, you know, she was the one who was like, if you're having suicidal thoughts, you can't drink anymore. Um, can you tell us more about that? And are you still in any type of therapy, whether that's individual or group? 
You know, I am, let me just take a little sip of, I love therapy. I, I am not in therapy right now. Um, and as a matter of fact, the uh, psychiatrist, she'd also diagnosed me as, you know, bipolar one, you know, rubber stamp. And, and I didn't disagree with her. Um, and I think that I still chose to just go it alone. And a, a lot of what happened Telluride uh, informed me of that decision. But I think the loneliness piece is where you're feeling the excitement of something so new and transformative. And then if you have the expectation that others should feel the same way, you're going to be a very lonely person, you know, not just physically alone, but, you know, emotionally alone. And what's, what I found is that the, the people I connect with so closely, and maybe this is the way it's supposed to be is, is with my kids, you know, because they're not thinking about the next drink. They don't need a keg uh, in order to have fun, you know? So, you know, alcohol, I, I think it was like the easy button, like I said, and once you take that away, the, the, the chance of you being alone is, is very strong, but the opportunity to reinvent what you think alone is or who you want to be or, you know, cultivate your network or your people or, or the time, you know, there, there's the people in my life of when I drank are still in my life and I, I love them. They're great people. And, you know, for a while I was like, gosh, you know, how come nobody wants to go on a bike ride with me? Um, and then I just kind of started thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, if, if, if I had a friend that got really excited about collecting stamps and does that mean I have to go to the, like the, the convention center with him when the stamp show comes through town? No, it, it doesn't mean that. It just means, you know, I'll see you when I see you, just not at the, the stamp show. And so I think just letting letting it go that the expectation that people are going to rally around you or really even care, you know, um, with, with the exception of a, of a lone few, it, it's freed me, um, I guess, from some of the, you know, made up, I guess, bitterness and resentment I had the first time that I stopped drinking, which I now equate to me just tricking myself that I should start drinking again, you know. Yeah, in the in the book you talk about how you would go to movies to find characters or storylines that reflected kind of what you were going through in your childhood as an adult now. How old are you now, Jason? Um, I just turned 50. So at the age of 50, um are you still finding yourself looking for uh, a father figure or cuz I read a lot of bios about great men and that's kind of how I am you know, searching out father figure type characteristics. Do you still find yourself doing that on some level? You know, I think I'm very lucky. My father-in-law is, is one of the, the greatest men uh, in my life. What's sad, heartbreaking a little bit is that, you know, one of the ways that we really connected early on was our, our love for wine. Um, and now that I don't drink anymore, there there's definitely a rift. And so I've talked this through with my wife on walks. She's a therapist as well. And, you know, I'm just 
it's part of me that's still a child going, another father figure has abandoned me, you know? Um, so once I realized that, you know, I, I don't think anything more of it. And so my search really for father figure, I, I, I can't say that I actively think about that. You know, I, I, what I try to do is be the father that I wish I had or the best without expecting anything in return. And here's a great example or an example is the other night, my son, he's a senior about to graduate and they had a crawfish broil and they were, you know, drinking whatever. And he was of course going to leave his car there. Uh, don't drink and drive. And so we all left and I was home, you know, at nine 30 or so on a Friday night. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go ride my bike, you know, and put it in the back of his pickup and I'm going to drive his pickup home and then I'm going to clean it up. You know, so when he gets home in the morning, his truck's all clean. And I did it. I detailed it. It took a couple hours and I was telling my wife the next morning, I was like, cause she was like, well, what'd you do last night? And I'm like, Oh, well you won't believe this. And I told her, I go, but, but I am not expecting him to, you know, say thanks. And we kind of joked about it. And, you know, it'll be one of those things that maybe when he's like 35 and realizes like, man, that was so cool, you know, that my dad did that, you know? Um, and so I, I think that if there's a father figure out there, I, I don't, I'm not searching for him. I think I've found him in me. I love that. And, and so to, to kind of recap part of your sobriety journey, we're, it sounds like we're talking about being of service, uh, you know, being grateful for the breath that we're taking now, engaging with new friends, hanging out, staying focused on the present, learning how to have fun again, tapping into what really fascinated us as a child. And uh, is there anything else uh, from your um your your sobriety journey, your mental health journey that we haven't discussed that you think would be of value to our listeners? Um, you know, <clears throat> filling that void, you know, I think it's the the Rudyard Kipling poem. If, you know, if you can fill that vacant minute with 60 seconds of distance run, try to take that literally. And, and this is an example I'm going to share with you. And this is the first time I've gone public with this. So it's kind of a risk, but um, my daughter and I were in New York over spring break and we went to the color museum and you can walk through all these rooms. And, and one of the rooms is a silent disco and you put the headphones on and it's like a really incredibly intense, like lighted floor. So we're dancing for like five minutes and I left and got back on the streets of Manhattan and I just felt so good, you know? And I go, man, I, I think I should silent disco every day, like 10 minutes. And so I do, and it's like 10 minutes has turned to 30 minutes and I've got my headphones, I make different playlists, different types of music. And what's so interesting is that it's the perfect example of nobody else wants to do it. You know, like sometimes I find myself like in the living room and I'm like, you know, and my kids pull it from school and I'm like, ah, you know, take it, like running in shame. Um, you know, like my daughter, she's in on the secret and she actually loves it. But it's just one of those things you're like, like if I was to go and talk to my old group of buddies, you know, and they're talking about like, 
you know, deer hunting and golf. And I'm like, oh, guys, you wouldn't believe this playlist I put together for my silent disco session. You know, they would literally run me out of the room. But at, th at this point, I'm so confident and happy about how it makes me feel. I'm like, well, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to silent disco my ass off, you know. And, uh, and it helps. It's like, you know, you can go run for 30 minutes and everybody thinks you're great, but you're busting up your knees. You may have bad form. Your shoulders hurt. But when you're like, you know, dancing, it's incredible. And in part of that New York trip, we went to see Chicago. And I mean, the dancers, you just forget how athletic they are and they're gracefully around. And, you know, if my, my goal is long-term life and, you know, doing the backspin at my daughter's wedding, then, you know, silent disco is, is the workout for me. I love that. I never thought about that. With dancing, you don't need to have perfect form. Nobody's worried about are your knees collapsing in or, you know, are, are you breathing on, on the push? You know, like all those different things, you kind of just let loose and let your body be free. Freestyle. And, and I'm a, I, I love research. I'm, um, you know, I always go down rabbit holes. And so, of course, I start looking at it and measure my calories on my watch. And I'm burning more than what I do when I run. And then I started looking at the history of dancing. And like, you know, here we are living in this day and age where more people are obese, um, more people are depressed, more people are committing suicide. Um, there's this layer of technology on top of us that, that humans just weren't built to experience. And if you go back thousands of years, what did people do? They would go hunt or something and they'd come back, start a fire, somebody would start banging on something and they would just start dancing because that's what they did. <clears throat> and, you know, they were healthy, happy, et cetera, until everything else came falling apart. But, you know, there's, you don't have to get too intense about it, but it's fun. I, I recommend 10 minutes, um, get two of your favorite songs and just, you know, pull the shades down. And, uh, That's exactly what I do. Oh yeah. I do it to like Afro beats or yeah, it, it changes for me on a day-to-day -day basis. Now I have to ask you this, Jason. Yes. Are you excited that Van Halen might be starting a celebration tour? Um, you know, that is the very first I've heard of it. And I am, if that is true. And I will say this today, I went to the talent show um, and my other son's a junior and he played a five minute electric guitar solo. Um, and his amp is an EVH amp. And he, his tribute was like, like to Randy Rhodes and also to Ada Van Halen. And I got to tell you, it was the coolest thing. I mean, I, I'll send you a video once I cut it up just to show you how excited I will be not only that, that Van Halen could do this celebration tour, but how excited he'll be once I tell him. Jason, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Uh, tell people where they can find you. I right now, um, I have a website, thejasoncarter.com. And, and really it's an aggregate of the stuff that is about the book or on Instagram trying to get a little TikTok information out there, but I haven't found the vibe yet. You know, I, I'm sure like you, you know, you have this mission and purpose that means a lot to you that you're on. And I'm really just trying to find 
the best way to do that, you know? And it, it, ultimately it could be nothing. I thought the book was like kind of the gift that I really wanted to give. And I know that to get more people to read it and receive it, um, the message, they need to find you online. So that's where I'm at right now. Um, and I'm trying to uh, keep people informed. And, and, and ultimately, I think that one of the reasons I wrote the book was I didn't find the book that connected to me. And so I'm hoping that this is the one that connects to somebody that maybe wasn't moved by the other 200 they read. So there's a lot of us out there doing a lot of great things. And um, we'll just go from there. Well, I enjoyed the book, uh, To Hell I Ride, When a Life Examined Became Worth Living by Jason Carter. Make sure you go out and get it. And then last question that I ask of all my guests, Jason Carter, because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Jason? Um, Stop, of course. But... I would say, hey, can I hear what's making you so sad? I would love to hear your story. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, myself included, when you're when you're to that place, you feel so awfully alone. And um, man, I think that the best thing I could do is I don't have the magical advice or silver bullet, but just go, hey, can you put it off 10 minutes and tell me what the hell's going on? you know, let's go sit over here and chat. And, uh, and if nobody is around, uh, to do that, just pretend that there is, and then pick up a phone and call somebody or go talk to anybody that's going to give you a meaningful listen, because, you know, once you're at that point, there's a lot of things, uh, that you think are wrong and that, that won't ever change. But, Man, if you just look out at the things you're doing and all the other people out there that are really trying to help people, it's 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 an easier time than ever probably to find the right person, the right information, or the right message that can turn your entire life around. So powerful. And and what I really love about your book is when you open up about the abrupt urge to jump, how quickly that urge dissipated deflated as you as you discussed he said deflating down to impotent shiftlessness or what a groveling hack might describe as whole and earnest whatever i experienced transitioned me into a pacified state comparable to being submerged in a volcanic ash mud bath at a spot east of san luis obispo what i love about that is it's a reminder to myself and to you and to the listeners and to all of us that the urge is not permanent. It is not permanent. It is, uh, it's a, it's a part of a cycle. It's part of a, a wave. And if we can ride that way from the urge to jump and, and let it, you know, move or deflate into impotent shiftlessness and then to a pacified state, then, you know, we can hopefully put on our headphones and then dance to a little disco that's right a song or two you know the, uh, the power of now <laughs> the power of now by Eckhart Tolle Tolle or Tolle I don't know how they say it yeah uh, I believe it's Tolle um I've just heard his name mentioned so many times but I I think that's one of the 
you know, I, I try to read a lot of stuff, but I think that's the one that, that almost captures everything, you know, um, you know, the, the, the wheel, the hub and the spoke scenario. But I mean, if you can kind of just do your best to try 5% of your day in the present moment, I mean, that's a, that's a lot. And it's, um, it really level sets things and brings us back to that pacified state where, okay, let's, let's take a beat um, and then move on. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you. Call on 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS or any of the other international phone numbers listed in the show notes. Whether you're in Thailand or Japan or, or uh, Omaha, Nebraska or San Diego, wherever you are in the world, there are phone numbers listed in the show notes for you can talk, chat, text, um, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you.